Good morning. Well, welcome again to uh, Tomball Bible Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Carl Carr. I'm one of the teachers here at TBC, and we're currently in a sermon series in the life of David. Uh, in today's teaching, we're going to be studying primarily from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19, if you want to follow along in your Bibles this morning. <clears throat> in this study that uh, we have titled uh, The King Forgives, uh, this passage actually caps off a, a really incredible story uh, in David's uh, life as the king. So as you might guess from the title of our study, The King Forgives, this morning we're going to examine in this passage in Second Samuel uh, in regards to the subject of forgiveness. So I believe that this is a crucial study for the church that has both uh, personal applications as well as applications for the church as a whole as we move forward together in making uh, disciples as Christ has commanded. Now, before we begin, I, I will confess to you that um, once I went to Second Samuel 19, I, I was not exactly excited when I realized that the focus of today's study was going to be on forgiveness. Now, perhaps that reveals something about me because the last time I preached, I was quite excited about my topic of discipleship and sacrifice and coming to God on his terms. But forgiveness as a topic at first just seemed a little too mushy and weepy for my taste. Um, I even thought to myself, shouldn't we just save this one over for the next women's conference maybe? But... Wow, this, this group is rougher than the first hour, but y'all are more awake, apparently. Anyway, so so when I ran into Skeet in my office a couple of weeks back, and I said, so, you know, where do you want me to go with Second Samuel 19, hoping he would say something else? Because th- there's several things that I could focus on in, in this passage, and, and Skeet said, well, I really want you to come down hard on David's forgiveness. And I said, yeah, thanks, Skeet, I was afraid of that, but... Um, as is often the case, though, with God's Word, uh, the parts that you really aren't interested in studying will often contain a message that you really need to hear. And, and as I prepared for today's message, I, God did reveal some things to me. And, and I pray that He will reveal things uh, to you as well as we uh, study this passage uh, this morning. So, Let's lift up this morning's study of God's Word in in prayer before we begin. So just pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning, uh, we acknowledge that that every time that we open your Word as a body, Lord, that there is a a real and likely chance, uh, Lord, that we will uh, encounter you. And so I pray for exactly that uh, this morning, Lord, and ask you, to bless uh, this study, bless the words from your scripture. Just pray, Lord, that nothing that I would say or do would get in the way of the message that you have for your people. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, as a result of Skeet's insistence, mainly, there are four major points uh, in regards to forgiveness that we will concentrate on uh, from this passage. Uh, Point number one is that, first of all, forgiveness reflects a kingdom perspective. So forgiveness reflects a kingdom perspective. Number two is a lack of forgiveness affects your relationship with Jesus. 
And number three, a lack of forgiveness prevents you from effectively serving the kingdom. And lastly, if God's people can't forgive each other, we will never be unified in our mission together. So as we begin this morning, let me just tell you that if you went just to to, uh, study 2 Samuel chapter 19, you might quickly decide that this chapter by itself does not make much sense without knowing the background behind the events that are described uh, in this passage. Therefore, to fully understand chapter 19, I'd like to first go back to the beginning of where the story begins and ask you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. So 2 Samuel chapter 15, and let's read the first 12 verses. And I'll be reading this morning from the ESV uh, Bible. If you would like to read along, there are Bibles at the end of each row that you can have for free, and also we have the uh, verses projected uh, on the screen. So, Second Samuel chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 1, where we begin with a story centering around Absalom, David's uh, son. So, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such and a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, We'll go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they were in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So, as we begin this story this morning, we read that King David's bitter but very handsome and persuasive son, Absalom, Uh, through manipulation and cunning, is pulling off a coup of sorts. Uh, And he's pulling off this coup to oust his father, David, from the phone and take over as king in his place. And and to David's apparent surprise, Absalom is initially quite successful in this endeavor, and he sets himself up as king in this nearby city of Hebron. Now, let's continue in chapter 15, and I want to read the next uh, four verses beginning in verse 13. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. 
And then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out and all the people after him. So David gets word that his son Absalom has pulled off this coup, this betrayal, and has assumed command, and he's got a fairly large group of followers. Now, David realizes that for Absalom to assume the throne, he's going to have to kill his father and his household and all of his loyal supporters. Now, David, as an experienced military leader, he also realizes that very soon, if he stays in Jerusalem, he'll be surrounded and outnumbered, and many innocent people will be killed if Absalom lays siege to Jerusalem. Therefore... David, with his longtime group of valiant and fierce and loyal warriors and all of his family, leaves Jerusalem. And they leave Jerusalem to both save the city from the sword and to return where he and his troops are most familiar, and that's in the wilderness. So David, he packs up and he, and he leaves before Absalom can seize the moment, so to speak, and he heads out of the city. Now, <clears throat> in the next verses that we read there are some key events for our study on forgiveness that I want you to pay close attention to. And they happen as David leaves Jerusalem. So let's jump down to 2 Samuel chapter 16. So the next chapter there. And we're going to look at the first four verses. So 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 4. And it says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a 100 bunches of raisins, and a 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, Well, where is your master's son, Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belong to Mephibosheth, you should have tried that at 8 o'clock this morning, anyway, is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So I just want to clarify As David leaves Jerusalem, Ziba, the head servant over Mephibosheth's estate, approaches David with help for his caravan. Now, evidently, Ziba had some idea that dethroning David with his seasoned warriors at his side might not go so well for Absalom. So Ziba, he approaches David and tells him a lie about Mephibosheth to gain favor should things go well for David instead. So it's kind of like Ziba was hedging his bets and taking advantage of the current events. Now, Mephibosheth was the only remaining descendant of Saul that David had mercy on. And ever since becoming king, David had bestowed grace and kindness upon Mephibosheth. 
and he actually treated him like he was his own family. Now, you would think that as, as David was leaving Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, just out of gratitude, would be the first one there to leave and to be at David's side as he left the city. But as David leaves the city and he is on the road, Mephibosheth is strangely nowhere to be found. Now, pick up with me again in chapter 16 where we were, and let's read verses 5 through 14. So David continues on his way. Verse 5, When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, Has he cursed? Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given a kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, uh, Shimei is this descendant uh, uh, of Benjamin, or, or a Benjamite. He's in the same tribe as King Saul was. Now, Shimei must be a little bit crazy because he's throwing rocks and dirt at David's mighty men. And when he does this, Abishai, beginning in verse 9, the son of Zeruiah says to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. I like Abishai. Anyway, but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, if he is cursing Because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, What have you done? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. There uh, he refreshed himself. So as David and his followers continue along, Shimei, this Benjaminite, who apparently was a fan of Saul and was quite bitter about David taking Saul's throne, He heckles and he throws dirt and rocks and disrespects David and his followers as they travel. And and this man, Shimei, even though he had been blessed under David's protection as king, takes advantage of David's desperate situation. And he takes this opportunity to kick David while he's down and vulnerable. But David inexplicably ignores this fellow and they continue until they make it to uh, the Jordan River. So this has been a really long day uh, for David. Uh, His son has uh, ousted him from the throne. He's had to flee uh, his home uh, in fear. Uh, He has been lied and taken advantage of uh, by Ziba. Uh, He has been abandoned and betrayed by his friend Mephibosheth. He's been kicked while he was down and humiliated by this guy Shimei. It has been a long day. Now, on this same day, and meanwhile, Absalom 
he is in control of all these new followers, and, and he's getting what he wants. He thinks he's going to be king, and he's consulting advisors as to what to do next. And in a couple of chapters, there's a long discussion uh, with his advisors. But Absalom uh, evidently decides to, to listen to the advice of one of his favorite advisors. And this advisor actually tells Absalom, what you need to do is move into Jerusalem, violate David's servants that he left behind, and then, then go attack David and his men in the wilderness where they are camped. Now, without going through all of those passages of explanation, let me just highlight what bad advice this is that Absalom receives. Absalom, you see, he has for an army a bunch of really excited volunteers who quite, li- quite likely have never been in battle, they've never navigated in the wilderness, or even maybe killed anyone before in their lives. David, now, on the other hand, has the same seasoned soldiers with him that were with him when for years they eluded Saul's and Saul and at the same time fought against the Philistines. And every one of David's mighty men had spent most of their lives in the wilderness and had killed thousands of Philistines while using the wilderness as a refuge. I want to explain that these were really dangerous men that David traveled with. Let me put it more plainly. It was kind of like Absalom's advice was that I want you to take this group of paintball warriors on the weekend and attack David's Navy SEALs on their home turf. And Absalom, he follows this advice. And they go and attack David's men in the wilderness. And as you might imagine, the results were disastrous for Absalom. Look now with me at chapter 18. Go down to verse 6. Chapter 18, verse 6 through 8 says, So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Jump down to verse 15. It says, And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So, the coup by Absalom to overthrow David comes to a quick end. And after mourning the loss of his son, David heads back toward Jerusalem with all his people. Now, we just read a few minutes ago how David had fled down this very same road in humiliation not long ago as he was being unjustly manipulated, betrayed, lied to, and attacked uh, by people like Ziba and Mephibosheth and this Shimei character. But now David, he is heading back down this road once again as king. And it's under very different circumstances than when he was going down the road previously. You know, if I'm David at this point, it's probably a good thing I'm not, but you know if I am David at this point, I would be thinking that now is payback time. Now it's time to settle a few scores. So just bring me Shimei and Zeba and Mephibosheth so I can watch them squirm. 
But David, he, he does something that's completely unexpected and very countercultural for his day. Turn with me, finally now, to our focal passages for this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And we're going to examine verses 16 through 30. So as David heads back toward the castle, we pick up in verse 16. It says, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, from Bahirim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Wow, what a difference a few days makes, huh? Now, Abishai, my favorite guy in the story. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back safely. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. So before we examine David's response here, I just want to review the cases of Ziba and Mephibosheth and Shimei. In the case of Ziba, Ziba had lied to manipulate David when he was most vulnerable, and David had caught him in this scheme. In the case of Mephibosheth, after David had bestowed just grace and mercy and kindness on his life, and instead of treating him like an enemy descendant of Saul, David had allowed him to live in his own home and eat at his own table. But then at the very first sign of trouble, Mephibosheth had turned his back on David. And of all the people in David's life, it was Mephibosheth that should have supported David to the end, but he instead failed David when he needed needed him the most. And in the case of, of Shimei, this character, Scripture tells us that Shimei had a large household 
and as many as 1,000 Benjaminite servants when he came to apologize to David. You see, Shimei, he had prospered and been blessed under David's rule as king. And as long as David was king, Shimei was his greatest fan. But when David is oppressed and he is attacked and things aren't going well for David, Shimei had jumped on this opportunity to attack David. And he even told him that he deserved what was happening to him. After all, David had actually bested Saul, who was a Benjamite like Shimei, and he had always been bitter about that. In other words, his previous support for David as king was never genuine. Rather, Shimei's support for David, it had always been only a show to further his own best interest. Now, with all the, the facts clear about these three men in regards to both their actions and their character... Guess who are the first ones to run out to meet David and ask for forgiveness once this rebellion is put down and David is back on top? Well, of course, it's Shimei, it's Zeba, and it's Mephibosheth. And by the world's standards, David has every right and the legal authority to strike back in vengeance and to even take their lives. But David instead chose to forgive. The dictionary says that to forgive is to give up resentment of or claim to requital. And that's just what David did. He gave up any claim of resentment on these three, and he gave up any claim to requital. So allow me just to stop right there just for a moment, and I want to just ask a few questions of you this morning that you can consider personally. Have you ever had anyone lie to you or lie about you or try to manipulate you or take advantage of you? Have you ever had anyone in your life that you've been like so good to and going out of your way to be a blessing in their life only to have that person turn their back on you or betray you or abandon you? Have you ever had anyone who acted like they were your best friend as long as it was, it was advantageous to them, only to find out that their friendship wasn't real and that they had been lying about you, attacking you, or despising you in secret? Have you ever had that happen? I think that if, if we are honest, all of us living in this fallen world have been betrayed or hurt by another person. And what's often so painful, they're often the people who are closest to us. The people that are supposed to be on our team are supposed to be on our side. Those are the people who betray and hurt you. And in our flesh, we sometimes desire retribution. And to this day, we sometimes harbor resentment and anger toward these people. And as believers, even though we sometimes desire vengeance in our hearts, when it really comes down to it as believers, we're not actually sure how we should respond. How we should act when we encounter betrayal and slander and hurt, especially when it's people that we loved and cared about. Well, as is often the case... Christ's instructions for his followers when we face this very thing is to respond in a way that is countercultural 
and certainly does not come natural to us. In, in David's case, after being slandered and, and lied to and painfully betrayed and even openly attacked by people like Ziba and Mephibosheth and Shimei, we see David, we see him respond in a manner that was surprising for his day. And it's even surprising for the people who knew David. David responds not in anger or vengeance, but in forgiveness. And if you really think about the story from our study passages today, you can't help but see the parallels between this story and the story of Jesus. See, the Pharisees in Jesus' life just wanted to manipulate him for their own gain. The people closest to him, like Peter, turned their back on him and abandoned him at the very first sign of trouble. Judas only pretended to be his friend for his own selfish interest. And, and on the road to Calvary, when Jesus needed people the most, many of the very people that Jesus had fed and healed were the ones who jeered and laughed and flung dirt at him. And just like in the story of David, Jesus responded in forgiveness and he even asked the Father to forgive them as well. And you know, like David, Jesus will one day be returning as king, but under very different circumstances as well. So if you look at this story and you consider Jesus, the message from Scripture is clear that as Christians, we are to live a life in a constant attitude of forgiveness. But... You might say in response to Scripture here that, you know, well, that's all well and good for you, but you don't understand what this person did to me. Or you may say, you know, you don't understand. These people who betrayed me are in my own family. Or you may say, man, you don't know what my dad did to me growing up. Or you may not understand what my husband has done or what my wife has done to me. It, it, it just hurts too much for me to forgive them. I mean, you can't possibly understand what havoc this person has caused in my life. And, and yet, even considering all that, Scripture is clear that God expects us to forgive, even when it's difficult. We even see in the Lord's Prayer that as we live out our lives, we are to seek God's forgiveness only as we forgive others. So, as we've examined these, these passages this morning, you may ask, well, man, why did David forgive these people? And, and, and furthermore, why should I forgive people? After all, I'm the innocent one here. I'm the victim. Well, for the answer, I want you to turn just for a moment to the book of Psalms. Turn to the book of Psalms with me. And I want to look just for a few moments at a few verses in Psalms 86. There are a lot of scholars that I read the last few weeks that believe that David actually wrote this psalm while the story that we study today was actually unfolding. So let's start in verses 3 uh, through 7 of, of chapter 86. In the book of Psalms, it says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. 
Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Now, jump down in this same chapter 86 to verses 14 through 17. Psalms 86 verse 14 says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see me and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So, if you examine carefully what David says in this psalm, you understand that David's ability to forgive others begins with his understanding that he is only able to be a follower of God because of God's forgiveness and mercy and grace in his own life. So, from a biblical perspective, God's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others are inseparably linked together. Do you get that? God's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others are inseparably linked together if you're a believer. Now, I want you to get this sometimes painful truth from Scripture. If, as a believer, you understand how your forgiveness is an extension of God's forgiveness and you can't forgive someone else, then you are in fact claiming that you deserve God's forgiveness and that this other person does not. So we must understand as believers that that this line of thinking runs directly contrary to the entire message of the gospel. And the gospel clearly states that none of us deserve forgiveness, but it is instead bestowed as a gift of mercy and grace that's made possible by the blood of Jesus at Calvary. So when we really accept the truth of the gospel, then we realize that our own forgiveness, our forgiving someone else, really, it has little to do with the person that we forgive, and it has everything to do with understanding your identity before a gracious and forgiving God. Therefore, a life lived in an attitude of forgiveness is not based upon other people, but is instead based upon who you are. In this paradigm, then, your forgiveness is not limited by what other people have done to you, but is instead an extension of your relationship with the Father. And once we grasp this spiritual truth, then we must come to realize that refusal to forgive has taken on the same power as an idol in your life. And and like an idol, it has the potential to become more important to you than your relationship with the Father. Then, at that point, forgiveness becomes essential to restore your own relationship with the Father and to free you from bondage that your lack of forgiveness has created in you. So, the most important thing about forgiveness is to understand, is this, what we must understand this morning is it's the very same thing that David understood and, and Jesus understood, and, and it's simply this. Forgiveness is not simply an issue between you and the person who offended you. Forgiveness is an issue between you and God. 
And when you understand that the very foundation of your relationship with God is based upon His forgiveness of you, then and only then do all of your objections to forgiving someone else just become pointless and they melt away. For me, as I study this passage, this principle, this perspective on forgiveness, it will forever change how I see forgiveness and grace toward others in my own life. So, if we want to really follow Christ and to be His disciples and be effective for the kingdom, why is forgiveness so important? Well, number one, we should forgive because as a believer, we should have a kingdom perspective. In this perspective, our priorities change from self-serving interests to the interests of serving the kingdom. We saw in Scripture today this kingdom perspective in David. You see, David fought Goliath who slandered God, but forgave those who slandered him. Personal offenses lose their importance when we have a kingdom perspective. Number two, as believers, we forgive because a lack of forgiveness toward others interrupts our relationship with the Father. God knows that if you can't forgive someone else, then you have been deceived about the very foundation of your own salvation. We have to cling to God's grace and forgiveness every day. This is why God cannot use you and cannot bless your ministry while you harbor this lack of forgiveness toward others. Because Christ lives in you, you live life in an attitude of forgiveness. And the two are inseparable. Number three, as believers, we are given a mission to make disciples. And a missional life cannot be hampered by a preoccupation with wrongs done to you by others. If you want to serve Christ, if you want to be a disciple, no matter what has been done to you unjustly and unfairly and undeservedly, you have to let it go and give it to God. A lack of forgiveness damages you more as a servant of the king than it does the person you won't forgive. As disciples, we are trying to get somewhere. We don't have time for all that junk in our lives. We're on a mission. And then lastly, number four, we as believers should forgive above all else one another. As the local church, we exist to make mature disciples to reach the nations. A lack of forgiveness in the church body inevitably breeds an environment of division. To be useful for the kingdom as a church, we must be unified in our mission given to us by the Lord Himself. Paul underscores this point in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we as fallen people, as a church, if we strive to serve the kingdom, we will sooner or later do something or say something hurtful to one another. Guarantee. And if we can't forgive one another like Christ forgave us, we will no longer represent Christ to a world 
that so desperately needs Jesus and so desperately needs to be discipled. And, and that's what grieves the Holy Spirit. So I just want to wrap up this morning's study by encouraging you this morning to, to take the challenge from Scripture about forgiveness, take it and apply it personally in your life. I think that we can start by just considering any area or relationship or situation in your life in which you're harboring a lack of forgiveness. Is it in your family? Is it in your church? Is it in your work? Is it at school? As we sing in just a few moments and and, uh, Evan and our team comes forward, I want to ask you to pray for God to reveal where this lack of forgiveness is festering in your life. And, and then lastly, I, I, want to, I want you to take this area in your life, if God reveals it to you, I want you to take this area of your life where you've been unable to forgive and just give it to God and let it go. By trusting God in this issue, you can find restoration in your relationship with the Father and you can find freedom from this heavy burden that you've been carrying around. So as we sing, I ask you to just pray for God to give you the strength and the courage to just give this to Him and trust Him with it. Whatever it is that's given you this, this burden. So the question for this morning is, will you trust you? Will you let it go? And will you forgive? So let's, let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, come before you, we come before you, Lord, somewhat with regret, Lord, of the uh, things that we've held on to, our own lack of forgiveness in our lives, these feelings of resentment and pain, Lord, that we hold on to and quite, quite frankly have just become a burden that's impeding our ministry and has been impeding us following you in making disciples. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, as a church, Lord, that you would heal the scars that are within us where we harbor this unforgiveness. Would you give us the strength and the courage, Lord, to just give it away, give it to you, and trust you. For it's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.